Second Decade is a historical podcast about a fascinating time in history, the 18-teens, and how that little studied period shaped the modern world. Once in a while, though, you gotta spread your wings and branch out a bit. On Second Decade Off Topic, I'm gonna give you some more history that falls outside the parameters of the main podcast. Informal, less scripted, perhaps less serious, Off Topic is to Second Decade what the people of New Orleans refer to as a land gap. An unexpected extra. Hello, this is the third edition of Second Decade Off Topic, kind of an after show, uh, and it's connected to episode 30, The White House Part 1, uh, which dealt with the history of the White House between 1809 and 1820. This is The White House Part 2, which is going to take the story from 1820 to the outbreak of the Civil War. I decided to do it this way because this part of the story is outside the 18-teens. It's off-topic, but it's still a very fascinating story. Part of the reason I wanted to do it is because there's very little awareness or discussion of what the White House was like in the antebellum decades. By, By that we mean the decades before the Civil War. Most White House history focuses on either on origins, the original building of the place, Uh, or else on Lincoln. There's a lot of stuff on Lincoln in the White House or the reconstructions, the remodelings, uh, especially 20th century remodeling. The uh, major remodeling of the White House I referred to that occurred under Harry Truman in 1948 or else uh, modern conditions, you know, modern history of the White House. So not many people talk about what the White House was like when, say, Franklin Pierce was there. I don't know. I'm interested in that kind of thing. So where we left off in episode 30, it's 1820. The White House has just been totally rebuilt after its destruction in the War of 1812. James Monroe now lives there, the last of the revolutionary generation. He was originally elected in 1816, and he moves into the house just as it's being finished in fall 1817. In 1820, he's reelected to a second term, essentially running unopposed. As you probably know, the White House has two sides. The north side, that's the square side, which faces Pennsylvania Avenue. And the south side, the rounded side, which is what most people think of when they envision the White House. Most pictures are taken, for example, from that angle. Monroe's second term saw a significant addition to the house, that being the south portico. That's the the rounded thing with columns. Uh, Note there was not a balcony there originally. The balcony was uh, put in in 1948 called the Truman Balcony. In the main episode, I didn't have time to get into some of the the really fascinating details of the White House in the early 19th century. One of the reasons why I'm attracted to this period in history, the the second decade, 18-teens, is really its beauty. Clothes, interior fashions, glow of candlelight, uh, actually interior lighting throughout history. That's just a really, really interesting subject. In the White House in the 18-teens and up until the advent of gas, which we're going to get to in a few minutes, of course they used candles and oil lamps. All the uh, the candles and lamps were stored in one place, which was the housekeeper's room, and they were brought out as it got dark. The housekeepers, they were sometimes free people, or actually the, the housekeepers were usually free people, but often they had slave underlings. Uh, anyway, they would uh, figure out how many candles and lamps you were going to need that night. You know, what's going on? Is there a reception? Is the president here? Is the first lady here? You know, whatever. So they would figure out how many candles and lamps you'd need that that night and then distribute them. And then, of course, they'd have to keep them burning all night. 
There were only two chandeliers in the White House. They were moved up and down on counterweights, and they had to be cleaned out. The, the wax stubs of the candles had to be cleaned out after each use. There were actually uh, also wall units, little like uh, boxes, one or two candles, a little glass box on the walls. And anyway, the candles gave the whole place a kind of dim medieval glow. It must have been really interesting to see. The White House was usually cold because they only lit up fireplaces in rooms that were being used. Uh, and also, uh, firewood was very scarce in the Washington area. Coal was too expensive and too dirty to be used much. They tended to use it only in the kitchen. I remember a quote from uh, Andrew Jackson, who, again, we're going to get to just uh, in a moment. Uh, but he talked, I don't know which room he was talking about, but uh, his quote was, Hell itself couldn't warm that corner. Anyway, getting ahead of myself, uh, we're still on Monroe, and, and Monroe really was the end of an era. Uh, he was kind of an anachronism. He still wore 1700s fashions. He powdered his hair, although it was mostly white anyway, so why bother? Uh, there's incidentally a long tradition of presidential hairstyles lagging behind reality. Uh, in the 1980s, Ronald Reagan styled his hair the way men typically did in the 1950s, early 1950s, and he also dyed it, of course. Anyway, I digress. Um, but the point is that Monroe was a holdover from the revolution, really the, the uh, 18th century revolution era. 1820s, when he was president, was really a transitional era, and it was the end of the revolutionary generation. Election of 1824, unexpectedly contentious. Uh, presidential elections tended, at least before that time and during this year, 1824, um, it was usually candidates uh, with regional support, uh, usually New England or New York versus a Southern candidate, often from Virginia, almost always from Virginia. Uh, 1824, though, uh, Andrew Jackson was in the mix, a military hero with populist leanings. Uh, this was a very bitterly fought election, and of course, there was no majority of electoral votes, so it went to the House of Representatives. And there was a, a, a famous uh, incident uh, or charges of a corrupt bargain in the House of Representatives. John Quincy Adams was chosen. Uh, and the rumor was that uh, Henry Clay, who he chose as a Secretary of State, swung the vote to him in exchange for a promise that he would be appointed to that post. We don't know if that's true. That was the rumor. Uh, John Quincy Adams, son, of course, son of John Adams, uh, he was really the last gasp of the revolution, uh, and he turned out to be a lame duck from literally the moment he got into office. Uh, Democratic supporters, supporters of Jackson, they, they thought that Jackson had been cheated, and Jackson was plotting revenge from day one, basically. Uh, John, Q. Ad uh, John Q. Adams... Yet John Quincy barely made a scratch on the physical space of the White House. He did attend its gardens, and there's a lot of sources, a lot of stuff in my sources, William Seals, the president's house, uh, about gardens, but gardening, frankly, bores the crap out of me, so I skipped it. Uh, John Quincy Adams used to swim in the Potomac, usually naked. One day, somebody stole his clothes while he was swimming. Uh, what do you say to a naked president? Uh, I don't know, but uh, that's all I'll say about it. John Quincy Adams. The election and inauguration of Andrew Jackson really was a sea change. He was not what he pretended to be, which was a champion of the common man. Of course, a lot of presidential candidates uh, pretend to be that. In fact, uh, Jackson was an aristocrat. 
a frontier aristocrat, but still an aristocrat, landowner, slave owner, made his people think he was a champion of the common man. Uh, He was loud, brash, super hot temper, extremely racist. He was constantly getting in duels, disobeying orders in the field, and uh, generally a headache to his superiors. And now he's president. Based on his reputation as a general and an Indian fighter, people expected Jackson to be this, you know, this really tough guy. Old Hickory, that was his nickname. In reality, though, he was a shriveled old man. Six foot one, only 140 pounds. That's incredibly thin. Snow white hair. Uh, he was usually sick. Uh, in fact, he had constant lead poisoning from an old bullet that was lodged in his shoulder, which was removed in 1831. By the end of his terms, he could barely walk. Sometimes he couldn't walk and was uh, rarely seen in public. Jackson's term didn't start out too well. Inauguration, March 1829, attended by more people than had ever come to an inauguration before, over 20,000 by one count. They totally swarmed the White House at the official reception. In fact, there were so many people that they formed a huge crushing stampede in the hallways. Uh, Jackson was completely overcome. He starts gasping for breath. They actually had to take him out a window, put him on a horse, and send him to a hotel. It's a little unclear whether the visitors, the the famed common man that Jackson supposedly represented, uh, it's unclear whether, in fact, they rioted after he left. There are reports that they rampaged through the house, stealing stuff, breaking china and crockery, ripping pieces out of the drapes, smearing bits of cheese into the carpet with their feet. The cheese is a contentious story. Um, And then finally, supposedly they're lured out of the house when stewards set big buckets of punch, spiked with booze, out on the lawn. Well, did it happen like this? Or is this just a story made up by elitist newspapers to paint Jackson's supporters as unruly hooligans? Unsure. I would not be surprised if most of it is true. Probably some of it is not. But uh, certainly, I think there is some basis, in fact, Uh, to the reports of rioting or at least unruly behavior. Except the cheese. Uh, The cheese is usually conflated with Jackson's 1829 inauguration. In fact, in reality, happened later. In 1835, true story, 1835, a giant wheel of cheddar weighing 1,400 pounds was presented to the White House as a gift by somebody from Oswego County, New York. The cheese had to be hauled by 24 horses, It was installed in the entrance hall of the White House, sat there for a year and a half with people breaking little pieces off of it and eating them, but that was sanitary. Finally, as it came time for Jackson to leave in 1837, the staff was like, what are we going to do with this damn cheese? So ultimately, they opened up the White House to the public to come in and have some. They demolished the cheese in two hours, uh, but it's said to have left a greasy stain and the stink of rotten cheddar in the hallway for years afterwards. I like cheese as much as the next man, but honestly, 1,400 pounds of it? That's a little much. Anyway, food was a big deal in Jackson's White House. One account of a dinner at the White House in Jackson's later years describes courses consisting of soup, boiled beef, wild turkey, boned and served with brains, yes, brains, uh, fish, chicken, beef tongue, salad, canvas back, duck, whatever that is, celery, partridges, sweetbreads, ham, and lots and lots of wine. This is a pretty remarkable feast. Generally, food in America in the 1830s was pretty terrible in most places. 
Jackson was one of the presidents, uh, actually there were a lot of them actually, whose first lady was not his wife. This happened more often in American history than you'd think, although we only had two presidents who were bachelors and one of those, Grover Cleveland, married while in office. Several others were widowers by the time they reached the White House, uh, Jefferson for example. Uh, Jackson's wife Rachel croaked right after his election, driven into her grave it was said by scurrilous gossip about her and old Hickory. Namely, that she'd married him before her divorce from her first husband was final. In fact, that was true about the divorce, uh, but actually, uh, Rachel, Rachel Jackson died of a heart attack. In any event, her niece served as Jackson's first lady, uh, but she died in 1836. By then, Jackson himself was worn out. He actually considered resigning, uh, but stuck it out until his hand-picked successor, Martin Van Buren, later nicknamed Martin Van Ruin for his botched handling of the economic crisis, until he was elected in 1836 and inaugurated in early 1837. Jackson did leave an indelible mark on the White House, more than just the cheese. By the time he was gone, you could actually take a real bath there. Running water was not piped to the White House until 1833, and even then, with a kind of a weird sort of Rube Goldberg-like system that relied on gravity, and the labor of one guy who had to man the pumps to get the water up into the second floor pipes. Incidentally, flush toilets, forget it, they were not installed until 20 years later. Martin Van Ruen, I shouldn't call him that, but I love the nickname, uh, Martin Van Buren, Martin Van Ruen got the heat for a terrible financial depression that came about principally as a result of Jackson monkeying around with the banking system. The charter of the Bank of the United States was a, a really big deal around the time of Jackson's re-election. In 1832. Fortunately, I don't have to get into that, except as an excuse to use the nickname Martin Van Ruin again. Yes, Martin Van Ruin. Love it. Uh, Van Buren found the White House in pretty bad shape when he moved in, except for the aforementioned running water. Uh, Jackson had done very little to the interior. Curtains were literally rotten, and carpets were all worn out. Entryways smelled like cheese. Apparently, everything was covered in a thin layer of wax, which is from the candles that were being burned everywhere. Van Ruin, sorry, Van Buren uh, freshened up the place a bit. New wallpaper, new curtains, new furniture, fresh paint. Overall, $20,000 worth of renovations. But in the middle of a financial panic, uh, it wasn't the best move politically. In fact, a story got around Washington that Van Buren had purchased gold-plated spoons for the White House. That was not true, but the story stuck got into all the papers. So the idea of Van Buren, who was also this very kind of, he dressed very flashy, he had this very aristocratic bearing, uh, the idea of him as a kingly waster of public money contributed to his epic annihilation at the polls in 1840. The guy who clowned Martin Van Ruin was the oldest person ever elected president at that time, 69 years old. William Henry Harrison, the first Whig, that's W. Uh, W-H-I-G, and he bore an uncanny resemblance, I've observed this before, uncanny resemblance to actor James Cromwell, you know, the farmer from the Babe Talking Pig movies. The usual story about Harrison's term, which lasted exactly 30 days, is that in order to prove he wasn't as old and weak as people thought, that he gave his inaugural address outdoors without a coat or hat on, it was raining and cold, and he caught pneumonia and died. Reality, not that simple. Actually, he was in pretty good health for most of March. There's an account of a dinner party where the new president, Harrison, is guzzling a bunch of booze, 
and he drinks toast after toast. Maybe it was the drinking, maybe probably not. But on March 26, he calls a doctor and says he's not feeling too well. Medical care in 1841 was barely out of the Middle Ages. Uh, the doc threw him a hot mustard pack, miracle cure for anything in 1841, and the newspapers basically waited for old Tippecanoe to croak. 12.30 in the morning of April 4th, 1841, William Henry Harrison shuffles off this mortal coil. Presidents never died in office before, first time this has happened. In fact, Harrison was one of only two presidents actually to die inside the White House. Of the mansion's next six occupants, none would stay longer than four years, and none would particularly distinguish himself while living there. Coming Civil War made being president pretty much an impossible job. The funeral of William Henry Harrison is interesting and weird. Apparently he was embalmed in salt, mummified essentially. Also uh, similar to an Egyptian mummy, he had three nesting coffins, each one with a window inside it, so the bereaved, or maybe the morbidly curious, could peer down and see the president's mummified face. Wow, what a thrill that must have been. Outer coffin was made of lead. Harrison, in fact, had two funerals, one in the White House, uh, by invitation only, and the other in Cincinnati. Harrison's old bones are still in North Bend, Ohio, his wife, in fact, never saw the inside of the White House. She was too sick to travel with her husband to Washington, and she stayed home in Indiana. She was packing at the time when the word came that he had died. Astonishingly, she lived until 1864, well into the adulthood of her grandson, Benjamin Harrison, who became president of the United States in 1889. John Tyler, the vice president who climbed up into the top chair in April 1841, he really didn't have a very easy time as chief executive. Uh, Tyler was from Virginia, and he was put on the ticket mainly to get Southern votes. And when he got into office, the Whig Party discovered that he was not going to be their puppet, which is what they had hoped. In fact, Tyler was actually drummed out of the Whig Party. Literally, he was drummed out. They had a ceremony with a drum. It's true. What they really didn't like, what the Whigs... Uh, uh, really did not like was his Tyler's veto of a bank bill in August 1841. They were trying to recharter the Bank of the United States, and he refused to do it. This move made him so unpopular that death threats flooded the White House. A drunken mob burned Tyler in effigy right in front of the White House. Only time that's ever happened. And in fact, Tyler and his staff were deathly afraid of bombs. In fact, there was uh, one incident in a mysterious box, very heavy and clanking suspiciously, arrived at the White House addressed to the president. The president was sure it was a bomb, an infernal machine, he called it. A staffer chopped the box open, pulls out a bunch of straw inside, turns out to be a miniature iron stove, some kind of I don't know, gift or demonstration model or something, who knows. Uh, Tyler had been hiding behind a marble pillar to shield himself from the blast of the bomb, he tells everybody, don't say anything about this, or the cartoonists are going to have a field day. Still, despite these difficulties, Tyler's White House, it was pretty happening socially. There was a lot of parties, a lot of receptions. Uh, the Marine Band used to play out on the portico, especially in the summer, and the place was generally friendly. Uh, Tyler's wife died in 1842. A year and a half later, he got a girlfriend, the daughter of another politician. In 1844, John Tyler was one of three presidents to get married while in office. 
His new wife was 30 years younger than him. With all his political problems, there was no hope whatsoever that John Tyler, whom some people called his accidency, it's even better than Martin Van Ruen, anyway, there was no hope that he could get nominated and win a term in his own right. His replacement as president was our only chief executive to wear a mullet, James K. Polk. From Tennessee, he emerged as a dark horse in the election of 1844. He beats Henry Clay of the Whigs, a fellow, poor fellow who spent literally decades trying to be president and who never quite made it, kind of like William Jennings Bryan or Mitt Romney. But Polk, anyway, seems like kind of an unpleasant guy, to be honest. Uh, he was a total workaholic, rarely left his office, extraordinarily ambitious. In his early career, Polk had fixed his star to Andrew Jackson, so much that Polk, in fact, was known as Young Hickory. Jackson, of course, was Old Hickory. Polk's wife was kind of a downer, too. Uh, she was intensely religious, and she forbade booze and dancing at the White House. Uh, there's an early photo of her, what they call a daguerreotype, uh, taken in 1847, and she looks like she's about to cough up a peach pit or something like that. She uh, has this very unpleasant expression on her face. The president sitting next to her looks a little bit like Doc Brown in the Back to the Future movies. 1.21 gigawatts! Anyway, uh, the Polks are very frugal. Sarah, the first lady, she decided they would spend only half the money appropriated by Congress for the White House. One of their brilliant cost-saving measures was to pink slip most of the White House staff and replace them with slaves from the Polks' Tennessee plantation, who, of course, did not get paid. Big cost savings. Uh, Polk bought several slaves while he was president. He was hoping to build a little plantation empire down there in Tennessee where he could retire, grow cotton, and whip his slaves once the presidency was over. Physically, the evolution of the White House continued under Polk. Uh, there was another major redecoration, which meant, of course, more velvet drapes, new furniture, and the central heating system was expanded, so now all the rooms had heat. Uh, gas lights, which are relatively new, in 1846 were installed. Uh, though horribly dangerous by modern standards, uh, gas light was thought to be fantastically new and modern in the 1840s. Before gas, of course, they used candles, uh, but also whale oil, uh, especially these uh, uh, decades, 1820s, 30s, 40s, uh, whale and whaling products were uh, very vital to the American economy, so a lot of whale oil was used. Uh, anyway, the gas lights, predictably, uh, Sarah Peach Pit Polk uh, absolutely hated them. She kept candles lit in her rooms and parlors. The president, in the meantime, was too busy working on pillaging Mexico to pay much attention to anything. As enthusiastic as people were about the Mexican War at its outset, there was still considerable opposition to it uh, while it was going on, and then, of course, uh, especially while it was over. In 1848, it was over, uh, but it was very unpopular with a lot of people. Polk had added a whole bunch of new real estate to the country, a lot of new territories, but with these territories came new problems. Chief among them was what was going to be the status of slavery in these new territories, and this was a problem that was very, very difficult to solve. Fortunately for him, Polk had pledged not to run for a second term. Zachary Taylor, hero of the Mexican War, was nominated by the Whigs and won in a landslide. Uh, Taylor was actually mostly apolitical. Apparently, he had never even voted before he became president. There was a, uh, He had sort of a feeling that military officers had a duty to carry out orders and did not have any business uh, 
opining themselves on policy. Kind of an interesting, interesting take. As for Polk's dream, remember that slave plantation he was trying to build down in Tennessee? He never lived to enjoy it. He died of cholera only three months after leaving office, shortest ex-presidency in American history. Uh, Sarah lives to the ripe old age of 87. Zachary Taylor was president for a little more than a year and didn't leave much mark on the White House. The Compromise of 1850 was the big show that year, one of the, one of the doomed compromises uh, on the fuse burning down to the Civil War. Zach's number comes up on the 4th of July. Uh, Independence Day party at the Washington Monument, which is then under construction. The president gobbles piles of fresh cherries and pours glass after glass of ice-cold milk down his gullet. Illness takes him out five days later. It's probably cholera, uh, but has also been characterized, probably not accurately, as fatal indigestion. 1991, believe it or not, a historian succeeded in having Zachary Taylor's old bones dug up and tested for arsenic. Theory was that he had been poisoned. Tests were inconclusive. Uh, They tended to show that his arsenic levels were not elevated, so it probably didn't happen. But if it did, uh, who did it? Millard Fillmore? Maybe. Uh, I don't think so. It was the milk, I think. The era before pasteurization, raw milk killed an incredible number of people. Uh, There is a reason, yes, why we pasteurize milk today. Millard Fillmore, supposedly the most obscure president, I would actually argue with that. I think fewer people have heard of Rutherford B. Hayes, despite his awesome name. And you have to admit Franklin Pierce isn't exactly breaking records on name recognition these days. Anyway, Fillmore, a very nice, chubby, white-haired man from upstate New York, uh, he was Taylor's vice president. As soon as he gets into the big chair, he pushes through the Compromise of 1850, which Taylor seemed to be vacillating on. Fillmore and his wife, Abigail, brought something to the house that it had never had before, which was a permanent library. Of course, presidents had books, Jefferson most notably, he was a, a bibliophile, but they always took them with them when they left. In 1850, Abigail Fillmore begins fitting out a little-used oval-shaped sitting room as a permanent library. Congress appropriated $2,000 for the purchase of books, most of which she bought. Soon, the White House had its own set of Shakespeare, a lot of travel books, a lot of law treatises, and some books on religion. Under Fillmore, the grounds of the White House are extensively redesigned and re-landscaped. Previously, the area around the place was mostly muddy and swampy. There were some gardens, of course, but uh, very little unified plan. And in 1850, this starts to change, contemporaneous, incidentally, with significant design changes to Washington, D.C. itself, uh, many of which Fillmore had to do with. Fillmore was not president for very long, and, of course, he too never got renominated at least not by his party. He later ran again uh, from the Know Nothing Party in 1856. Anyway, uh, Fillmore's successor was Franklin Pierce. Very nice man, very handsome man from New Hampshire. Also a very, very heavy drinker. One of the more popular articles on my blog at seanmunger.com is a profile of his life, which is called Our Drunkest President. It's true. I've always had a fascination with Franklin Pierce. Don't ask me why. He makes a cameo appearance, in fact, in a short story I wrote years ago, which is in a collection available on Kindle, President in the Bathroom. That's the name of the collection. It's free on Kindle, believe it or not. Anyway, I digress. Uh, The thing about Pierce and his wife, Jane, their lives were marked by sadness and tragedy. Worst tragedy of all happened right before they moved to the White House. 
In January 1853, while Pierce was president-elect, he and his family were traveling on a train from Amherst to Concord, New Hampshire. There's some kind of accident. It's not clear to me exactly what happened. Uh, but the train derails, rolls down an embankment, and crashes. Benny, the Pierce's 11-year-old son, has his skull crushed. He's almost decapitated, and it happened right in front of both Franklin and Jane. Both the Franklins, who had already lost two other children in infancy, they're scarred with PTSD. Jane, the First Lady, she goes a little nuts in the wake of Benny's death. She's sure that God has taken him away so as not to distract Franklin from his job as president. On the way to Washington, in Boston, she declared she's not going to go any farther. She will not go with him to the White House. Uh, after Pierce's inauguration on March 4, 1853, uh, he reaches the White House to find the place totally in disarray. Fillmore's were gone already. Presidents in those days were expected to make their own domestic arrangements, hire their own servants, everything. Uh, and little of this had been done because of the Franklin's family tragedy. So the president enters the darkened White House with his secretary by the light of a flickering candle. There's rubble from the inaugural reception everywhere, broken dishes, chairs turned over, that sort of thing. Not a very auspicious beginning. After living in Baltimore a while, President uh, uh, Jane lives in Baltimore. President goes to visit her often, stays overnight there. Uh, Jane finally comes to the White House eventually. And she uh, sat in an upstairs room dressed in black and wrote letters to her dead son, Benny. She remains depressed and withdrawn for the rest of her life, rarely appearing at official functions. Pierce's term as president is an utter disaster. He was mobbed by office seekers. All presidents were in the 19th century, uh, but they're increasing. Uh, Pierce is weak and vacillating. He's from New Hampshire, but he's what uh, people sometimes called a doe face, which is a northerner with pro-Southern, pro-slavery views. And his initiatives blew up in his face one after another. The only exception being the uh, shining accomplishment of the Gadsden Purchase, which is basically an acquisition of a strip of bleak desert in southern Arizona uh, that a transcontinental railroad would eventually cross. Pierce did redecorate the White House, though, and as I said, it was under his administration in 1853 when the White House finally got flush toilets. Way to go, Franklin. Anyway, Pierce drank heavily, very, very heavily. Given the problems with his wife, PTSD over Benny, and the utter horror of his administration, and the inexorable approach of the Civil War, I mean, come on, wouldn't you hit the sauce if, uh, if it was happening to you? It's rumored, now this is rumor, according uh, to some sources, upon leaving office uh, to his successor, James Buchanan, on March 4th, 1857, when asked what he was going to do in his post-presidency, Franklin Pierce is supposed to have said, there's nothing to do but get drunk. He died a hopeless alcoholic in 1869, died of cirrhosis of the liver. Big shocker, I know. James Buchanan, 15th president, pretty much rock bottom on historians' rankings of the worst ever presidents. Last chief we'll cover tonight. His term started inauspiciously, too. For one thing, his tummy didn't feel too good. While president-elect, uh, Buchanan hosts a huge dinner party at the National Hotel in Washington. Sounds like a great idea, right? Well, several people at the hotel come down with food poisoning. In some cases, fatal. 36 people killed by this food poisoning. Buchanan himself is stricken. 
He goes back to his estate in Pennsylvania called Wheatland and basically sits on the toilet for a couple of weeks. Turns out that the National Hotel not only was food prepared in the kitchen right next to a pipe that vented gas from the sewer right all, all over everybody's food, but they also, now get this, they also found a dead rat in the tank that provided fresh water to the hotel. That is pretty disgusting. There were no municipal health inspectors in 1857. The thing was, now it gets worse, the thing was the manager of the National Hotel was a very good friend of James Buchanan, a political ally. And the rumors that his filthy, disgusting hotel had gotten everyone sick and killed 36 people were on the verge of ruining his business. Gee, go figure. So as a vote of confidence in his friend, Buchanan decides he's going to show everyone that he's not afraid decides to host another dinner party at the National Hotel on the night of March 3rd, 1857, the night before the inauguration. Exact same thing happens. Buchanan gets very sick. Rumor has it that he had the runs the morning of the inauguration and almost could not uh, give uh, give his speech. In fact, he does uh, get through his speech, which is particularly long-winded and turgid, uh, and he says everybody should just forget about slavery and make nice. This wishful thinking approach to the nation's problems was pretty typical of Buchanan's term. Buchanan was a bachelor president, never married. The rumor is that he was secretly gay. Uh, I am not going to opine on that one way or the other. There is evidence both ways. Anyway, uh, the role of the first lady was filled by his niece, Harriet Lane. She was quite the Victorian lady. Her parties, her dinners, her soirees at the White House were the toast of Washington. Best social White House, it was said, since Tyler. Isn't it curious how the bad presidents seem to have all the best parties? Harriet Lane also bought some new furniture in 1860. It was very ostentatious, Louis XV style. Uh, Believe it or not, up until then, they were still using the same French furniture that was bought during the Monroe administration. And it was now, of course, getting a little long in the tooth. Although the next First Lady, Mary Todd Lincoln, complained that the White House had been neglected and was in really bad shape when she moved in, actually the Buchanan administration took pretty damn good care of it, bought a whole bunch of new stuff, so uh, Mrs. Lincoln appeared to uh, uh, protest too much. Like most presidents in the early 19th century, Buchanan never spent the summers there. He was mindful of the bad fumes and the malarial miasma of the place, the exhalations of the earth, they called them at the time, and maybe he finally learned something from that little spell at the National Hotel. Anyway, he spent summers at a building called the Soldier's Home, which is technically across the line in Maryland, but it's not too far from the White House. And this was sort of like Camp David before Camp David. Lincoln also spent a great deal of time there. Buchanan's single term was an even more spectacular disaster than Pierce's, if that's even possible. Country was literally coming apart. Unlike most of his predecessors, who at least pretended to want to be renominated and reelected, Buchanan made no secret of the fact that he wanted to just get the hell out of there. He made absolutely no try for the Democratic nomination in 1860. Wouldn't have gotten it anyway. The fracturing of the Democratic Party makes an opening for the new political party, the Anti-Slavery Republicans, who nominated Springfield lawyer and former one-term congressman, a fellow by the name of Abraham Lincoln, as only their second presidential nominee ever. In the final months of Buchanan, basically he saw his job as making as few waves as possible and trying desperately to avoid the open civil war that uh, he was sure was going to happen 
until he could pass the buck to his successor. That's a that's a pun. Uh, Buchanan's nickname was Old Buck. Uh, Buchanan also drank very heavily. It was said that he could suck down two bottles of rye at one sitting and not be drunk. Uh, people drank a whole lot in the early 19th century. Honestly, they did. But this is pretty extreme. Two bottles of rye. That is uh, insane. Anyway, Buchanan was at a wedding reception in Washington on December 20th, 1860, when official news comes that South Carolina has seceded from the Union. He was chagrined. It said that he tottered a bit. He sat down heavily and gripped the arms of his chair. Then he left the reception abruptly. Ineffectual though he was at preventing it, Buchanan, to be fair, he did not want to see the Union broken apart. He was not a Confederate sympathizer. There were rumors that his predecessor, Franklin Pierce, in fact, was. We don't know that for sure. Anyway, uh, the Lincolns arrived in Washington in late February. By then, seven more southern states had seceded, and the big issue is what's the government going to do about the federal installations in those states? Fort Sumter in Charleston Harbor in South Carolina was the chief uh, one in that category. Buchanan gets his wish just barely, uh, his wish is that nothing big will happen until he's gone. On Inauguration Day, March 4th, 1861, Buchanan said to Abraham Lincoln, quote, Sir, if you are as happy as entering the White House as I shall feel on returning to Wheatland, you are a happy man indeed. One month and eight days later, civil war began. That is it for this episode of Second Decade Off Topic. Uh, there will, of course, be more uh, Second Decade, uh, the main podcast episodes coming this season, working on some now. And it's we're now on the Recorded History Network. If you didn't get that uh, memo, I announced that at the beginning of Australia series, I believe. Anyway, we are on the uh, Recorded History Network, great network. Um, also, I kind of moonlight occasionally on the New Books Network podcast. That's uh, under the Science and Tech Enviro Studies uh, section. If you go to newbooksnetwork.com and drill through there, you can get there. I've interviewed a couple of environmental history authors. Hopefully, we'll be doing another one soon. I teach classes online. Going to be offering another one. You can check my website, seanmunger.com, for that. Um, and you could find my books on Amazon. And I'd love for you to contribute to my Patreon account. So that's it for tonight. I hope you enjoyed the show, and I will be back with more history in another edition of Second Decade. Good night. Martin Van Ruin. Ruin.